0: Uh, Ray Scott, Colorado State Senator.
1: Thank you for joining the program today. Very honored to have you on the program. You're a published author now, it appears, on The Federalist, and that's where I got your name from, but also being part of the legislative body that really had a firsthand account of, I believe it's Proposition 112, if my memory serves me correctly. And here on this program, of course, the people of the Crude Life know that we've been following this rise of the cult of environmentalism for about five years now. And it's been very disturbing to see how the narrative has switched to the extremes that it has. And we've used the Colorado as an example with the new rules ushering in banning anywhere from 60 to 70 percent of the uh, drillable Oil leases, depending on which study you're looking at. It's bleeding into Wyoming in terms of some of the federal leases. We've got some judges, then the first time in history, banning the drilling on there. Oregon just passed in their Senate, I saw last week, a similar proposition that was going on in Colorado. And now you got two presidential candidates, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, actively, openly saying that they'd like to ban oil and gas activity going forward, if elected, as part of their platform. So um, we appreciate you coming on the program, Mr. Ray Scott, because we're a non-political program, actually. We don't get into politics. We we try to just stick with the nuts and bolts of the oil and gas industry. We joke that, boy, ESPN has even gotten into politics now. I can't even (laughs) go to a sporting event without having to feel a certain way about the national anthem. So this we look at as... What I just explained to you is is no longer politics. This is the way of life. When you got states banning it and you got presidential candidates talking about banning it, I don't think they understand how much of an impact this is going to have on the change of life as we know it. So that's kind of, I just want to preface a little bit to the listeners out there, what we're going to be talking about. And your article from the thefederalist.com is titled Colorado's Governor Unmasks himself as an anti-energy extremist and that just caught my attention because the first thing that popped in my head was trojan horse so talk to me a little bit about your perception your involvement how this proposition came to be from your perspective because you're out there in grand junction is that correct
0: yes i am jason uh and thanks for having me by the way i appreciate it uh, yeah you know you, you mentioned uh, the uh, uh proposition or ballot initiative 112 that was out in colorado that that was actually last year and what that what that proposition was was to to basically ban drilling because they wanted a 2,500 foot setback uh from a, a litany of of uh different locations and what it did was if you think about 2,500 feet it, it, it actually turns into a mile because you have to do a circumference around a location right. So it turned into a one-mile setback, which effectively just put people out of business. So then what happened is we had Senate Bill 181, that the governor put forth this last legislative session, which of course passed because Colorado has flipped again in one of our cycles where we have Democratic control throughout the entire state house. So that bill passed. Um, It's the reincarnation of of 112, basically is what it is, just under a different title, Uh, many different stipulations, but I think that what was really interesting about this particular situation was this governor, Jared Polis, who was a congressman prior to that, was the father of the anti-fracking movement in Colorado back in, I believe it was 2014. Of course, when he ran for governor, then he had to come out and be more moderate, and he he couldn't say those types of things, uh, or he would have a difficult time getting elected. So he was embracing and, and saying that you know he would work with the energy companies and, and do all the, you know, he said all the right things. Well, 181 came along, and what we learned really, really quickly here in Colorado was he did not intend to govern like a normal governor. What he intended to do was, what he learned in Washington, D.C. from President Obama, was let your regulatory agencies be your heavy hand, and that's what he did. So the, the 181 structure is such that They wanted to call it local control to satisfy some of the front range folks, the Boulder crowd we call it, um, so that they would have control over regulations, setbacks, the things that were negotiated usually with the state agency, only on a local level to make it sound like the locals now have control. But what they failed to tell people was that the state will still set the regulations but a, a city or a county cannot do cannot do anything less than what the state law says. So just for a silly example, if the state regulators say that we have to have a 2,500-foot setback from a pine tree, for example, the county in that case cannot come back and say, well, 500 feet's okay with us. So, you know, by saying local control, it was, it was a massed effort. Uh, on his part to try to make it sound like he was being an all-inclusive governor and that we would have this local control uh, Piece to our, our, our oil and gas industry and it's, it's a crushing blow <coughs> So that, that's kind of where that whole piece came from Was in discussions because he, he didn't only do it with just oil and gas But he did it with some other agencies also and he's he's still continuing that trend today.
1: In your piece okay. on
0: the,
1: I'm sorry, in your piece on the Federalist, you talk about how uh, Governor Jared Polis, is it pronounced? Correct. Okay. He was the founding father of the anti-fracking movement in Colorado? Yes, he was. Yes, so he was. That, that's pretty incredible, actually, to be the founding father. You know what I mean? That You didn't join oh, the yeah. group. You created the group.
0: <laughs> well, you know, he, he's, a, he's a very wealthy individual. Okay. Right? He has. You know, reportedly several hundred million dollars of, of his own personal wealth, um, and he, he started that whole process back when we started fighting fighting that five years ago, five six years ago, and uh, yeah, you you would have there's a fascinating book out there that you could read if you ever had the time. It's called the uh, the Colorado Blueprint, and what it was is that the, the book talks about how the opposition party, in my case, which would be the Democrats wrote a blueprint back in 2004 on how to take over Colorado. And I would suggest to your listeners, I don't care where they're at, that they should read that book. You can get it on Amazon or someplace. It's a quick read. But it talks about how they built an organization, more like a corporation, to go out and take Senate districts and representative districts uh, from Republicans because, you know, we we kind of believe in the rules, (laughs) The other side doesn't believe in the rules so much. This is interesting to
1: me because in our program, like I said, for the past five years, we've been co- we've been covering this rise and like, we we call it the cult of environmentalism because, uh-huh. well, the average environmentalist. Okay, I don't know how old you are, but um, when I was a kid, there was a there was an actor named Ed Bagley Jr. and he was a crazy actor and he would drive around in a garbage powered car and he would talk about. You know biomass renewables. He was walking the walk. He'd chain himself to a tree. These types of things. I had respect for him at least. You know, I might not have agreed with everything he talked about, but the guy was driving around in a garbage powered car. More power to uh-huh. him. I don't want to do that, but good for you. Great. Sure. Sure. So, well, you know, what, I think one but, of the things that, that but that, but I was going to say right. t- today's environmentalists they don't do that. All they do is they text and they troll and they drink their Keurig coffee and they don't actually really do much to solve the problems they just sit around and point fingers that's so we've been tracking this for a while to the tune to where we're we're seeing almost this orwellian type double speak happen and now when you mentioned colorado blueprint boy that that just really validated what we've been trying to say here what we've been saying is that you have to take a look at the smoking ban when you take a look at like in North Dakota, we had a smoking ban and it happened in a lot of other states. It became a blueprint, meaning that they, they took the, the way of public safety, and they, public health, women and children, and you did all the right different things that'll get to the politicians and it'll get to the public. And that's how you create a ban. That's what I saw with Colorado was I saw what they did with the smoking ban a lot. not Not identical, but enough similarities to where it was a blueprint now that I see there's a Colorado blueprint. That's amazing to me that, um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I just wanted to validate what you were talking about to the listeners that, sure. you know, you, you and I, <laughs> we we ended up in the same place. We took different roads, but we ended <laughs> up in the same place.
0: Yeah, you know, really, and, I, and if, you, if if somebody wants to read that book, what they're going to see is a group of four incredibly wealthy Coloradoans, Jared Polis, our governor being one of them, wrote this, Blueprint, and they enacted the blueprint, and lo and behold, he's now our governor in 2018. So they're, they're, they went full circle with this. It took them, you know, 14 years to do it, but they did it. Um, and I, you know, I would suggest to your listeners that this isn't just a Colorado problem. That uh, yes, people in New Mexico, and Utah, and Wyoming, and Montana, and the Dakotas need to be concerned about these things because it, it's it's a it's almost a religion, right? I mean, if these mm-hmm. these folks have. have They've learned how to hit those emotional triggers without any logic
1: whatsoever. It's, it's funny um, you use the word religion because we used the word religion up until two months ago when we started becoming a little. Lo- what we're doing is we're taking the narrative back. And one sure. of the ways that we want to take the narrative back was we had to switch the word religion to cult because, you know, religion is almost. It all of a sudden, quickly, the argument can become about something else, really quickly. And, oh, I know. And, yeah, oh, and 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 I know that's not what you were trying to do there, and everything. But yeah. I just I wanted to point that out that you know actually when people go back and listen to the past interviews, and I've written stories called "The Religion of Environmentalism" because people are blindly following it. It is just it is incredible the way that people's passion has has risen to the. Like I said, the, the, we called it the religion because the only other passion that we saw that strong was religion. And so that's why sure. we come So anyway, we switched it to cult because... Oh, absolutely. Because a little more crazier. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt you on that one, but I just no, you're fine. I, I was fine. laughing at that going, you know, here he used the word that we were using for a long time because it's true. <laughs> but it is. And, and let's get back to the point at hand here, which is... Um, there, there is a lot of uh, misguided facts, you know, and I'll say it on both sides. However, the one that I believe that is really misguided is this whole this whole um, movement to ban oil and gas because it's it's done on a lot of false science and a lot a lot of um, just propaganda overall. And I don't necessarily believe that the average person has an understanding of how much involvement oil and gas has on has on a day-to-day basis from the cafe owner to the window uh dealer to the car dealer you know what i mean by that
0: oh absolutely and i think the other problem we're dealing with too is that you know again we don't know how old each other are. i'm not going to tell you because i'd embarrass myself but uh as you, as you look at these millennials i still haven't figured out that age bracket you know it's, it's either 18 to 30 or 18 to 50 i'm not sure what it is anymore but but uh you know that that group of people doesn't—they don't understand uh, that if you go back in history, not that far, you know, about eighty yet to a hundred years, when you start talking about climate change, I actually did a speech in, in our chambers one day and, and got all kinds of criticism from that younger group because I was talking about reverse climate change. Because if you went back a hundred years, you went back eighty years, our air quality was terrible. We had all kinds of issues with water pollution and. All types of things were going on, and the oil and gas industry—you know—they'll admit they were part of the problem. But look how far we've come in that last eighty years. You know, the big cities, like where I have to go to Denver all the time, used to just have a brown cloud over the top of it. It's gone. Once in a once in a while, with an inversion or something, it'll it'll pop pop up. But we have done so much within the oil and gas industry and other industries uh, to clean the air, to clean the water, to advance all types of things, medical devices, medicines, everything that you can imagine, and people don't talk about that. Everybody's afraid of, of talking about the reverse effects of climate change. We're in a hell of a lot better place than we were 80 years ago.
1: Ray Scott yeah. from Colorado is our guest from the Grand Junctionary. What district exactly? Uh, Senate District 7 is what we call it over. Senate District 7, Grand Junction, of course, they're a big uh, uh, natural gas provider. Is that correct? If yep. my, I, I, I love yep. Grand Junction. Actually, Rifle, I stop there usually and have lunch and sit down by the, yep. ri- down by the river and um, yep. enjoy myself or Fish Hook Lake if I've got the time. Hanging, sorry, Hanging Lake. And yep. Um, yep. anyway, uh, one of the things I, I did want to mention to you is you'll get a kick out of this. I wasn't planning on bringing it up during this interview, but – Uh, The crude life has actually sponsored uh, Johnny green who went on to become the earth's champion because we loved his message, his message he's, he's gone on to win the championship as the the greatest environmentalist on the planet. And Uh um, his message is quite simple that the energy industry right now is the leader of the environmental movement on the planet. And what it, what he means by that is, what we just talked about, how the average environmentalist now is a texting, trolling, which by the way, cell phones are the number one polluter on the planet. Number two. Yeah, number two is that the oil and gas industry has done more for reclamation and the land and bringing back native plants and getting rid of invasive species than anyone else on the planet. And I'll tell you what, we love his message. So he's actually going around talking to people about it, he's got a championship belt and everything. About how oh, about how the earth, the oil and gas industry is changing, is saving the planet. They're the leaders of it, and that's what I meant by we're actually taking the. Par- this is a paradigm shift. We're taking the narrative back because what you're talking about is right. A hundred years ago, there was an issue, but the responsible leaders that I believe the oil and gas industry is because I, I think they're the last bastion of capitalism left on the uh, uh, in the economy. They're the last ones that not only pay their fair share of taxes and fees and, and regulatory um, fees, and sorry to use fees twice, but they pay more than their fair share when it comes to those things. And they usually have enough money to give to the local softball team, so they have uniforms, and the church has a bake sale. They seem to always, you know, in Watford City, they just donated $200,000 to make sure that the birth wing has as correct uh, equipment so that Watford City in their 300% growth can have, have babies now. That's another under underreported story is how much they get taxed and then they turn around yeah. and continue to evolve and empower communities. So yeah. that, that to me is, is some things that I, I think really get undersold. And the fact that they're now leading and becoming these environmental champions is amazing. I wanted to talk about the millennials for a second too, because Boy, you hit a lot of hot buttons for, for this program, because that's another story that we've been talking about, which is 70% of the oil and gas industry will be retired by 2023, okay? That means, that uh-huh. means a whole new sea change of people are going to come in. And there's a concern that mostly with the millennials, not so much Gen X, but the millennials, there has been a century of respect that has been built between the landowners the government and the oil and gas industry, and it would be a shame to have that wiped out in five years. It would be a shame. And, and, what, and what's happened in Colorado, Wyoming, and Oregon is, is a sign that the vetting process is happening meaning that they're getting more serious now about vetting to make sure because there might be some more Trojan horses out there. All right, go ahead. Your comment on this. Not nah, You got you got my political ire up today. I don't know, man. What's going
0: uh, on? I'm sorry. I, you know, I, well, that's, you know, that's the world I have to live in right now. <laughs> you know, one of the, you know, I mean, there's so many different spinoffs when we talk about these things. That, you know, your point right now is just about the, the fact we're going to lose a lot of institutional knowledge, if you will, as these folks start to retire. You know, I find it fascinating, too, because I have been around some of the operators where they are bringing in some of the, the, the whichever generation they are, millennials, and they've, they've actually told me that once they are working for them, uh, they start to get an understanding of what is really going on from the ground to production of whatever that might be, a tire, a tennis shoe, an automobile, and uh, there's, there's some, they see some changes in their attitudes. Of course they think about those things differently, but uh, I think as time goes on, because there's no magic transformation from fossil fuels to something else. You know, wind and solar, for example. You can't magically just transcend yourself from one power source, if you will, to another without some kind of ramification. Now, that said, where they see the change is in their wallet, because if your power and your utility bill and your gasoline and all the things that you buy start to quadruple in price, then 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 it hits you, right? I mean, it's always about the money, right? So if people learn that their wallet is going to be impacted, uh, in my case in Colorado, the oil and gas industry brings about $34 billion a year to Colorado state economy. That's a massive number. It employs 250,000 people in our state. That, that's a that's a huge huge number of people that are impacted and if you start to mess with people's wallets and they realize that you know some service or something is going away and some governor is going to have to raise a tax or a fee that gets people's attention and I think that's an area where we can really make hay if we really start breaking down the numbers and just you know figuring out how much people really want to spend on say renewables for example our governor has In the industry and people with common sense understand that's not practical and it's not economically feasible. It just doesn't work. But I'm, am af- you know, I'm, I'm afraid some people are gonna have to find that out the hard way, right? Well, they're gonna have to learn, and it's it's not it's not,
1: it's gonna be a very painful experience. It's gonna be extremely painful, and I think you don't have to look very far to see what's gonna happen, especially no. like like Germany. You know, I mean, that's what they're trying to do is very similar to what Germany and Europe's trying to do. And yeah. um, we had Dr. Lauren. See Scott on economics, a professor at Louisiana State. He's for forty years. He's written the forecast for the state for oil and gas. He speaks on a number of different economic and energy issues, including, um, you know, BP and Exxon and that sort of thing. So the guy, the guy's knows what he's talking about, and right. he's a little bit afraid right now about the natural gas thing because um, it's like seventeen bucks over in. Germany right now and they actually had to fire the coal plants back up this year because they they couldn't make it on renewables yeah they got a lot of great stories and a lot of good PR but after that happened they got to fire up the coal plants in order to keep people happy again because it's getting really expensive out there um no, no question I'm I'm looking at you know the renewables let's take the last 20 years okay we put a lot of subsidy money into wind we put a lot of subsidy money into solar byron dorgan a former democrat from north dakota he used to call north dakota the saudi arabia of wind and boy i'll tell you what we pumped a lot of money into into wind energy and i'm not a big fan of wind energy in fact i've been on record many times saying that and i and i believe this is not political this is a fact that the farmers from 100 years ago were more efficient with wind energy than we were. They went and used windmills to get water out of the ground, good for them. We have not advanced beyond that, in my opinion. Solar, yeah, we do a pretty good job of charging some cell phones and some minor things, but beyond that, no. We haven't gotten to the terawatt of storage. Basically, all of the promises that oil, I'm sorry, that wind and solar gave us 20 years ago and 10 years ago have not come to fruition. They have failed in terms of if, if we were doing any sort of academic grading, they would have failed. It's, it's just not even arguable. They would have failed. So when I think of that, and now all of a sudden, now we've got to have a new push. So we got to spend more money at a problem that we don't have any solution to. It bothers me because when I see what's going on with flaring, okay, flaring is a problem. And there is a lot of people that are living on well sites with these science projects. And these oil companies have paid so many taxes and so many church bake sales and so many softball uniforms and regulatory fees. They just don't have an extra couple million lying around for the science project of the week. So you're a Republican. I get that you're not a subsidy guy. I've talked to a couple other people that are not a subsidy people either. But the renewables are already getting the subsidies. My question is this. Is it time that we have the conversation to shift those subsidy dollars from wind and solar to natural gas? Because I believe it's a solvable problem in less than five years. What do you think?
0: Well, yeah. No, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me to think of it wasn't that long ago that there was a huge push when gasoline prices prices got incredibly high, that uh, there was a huge push to put vehicles on natural gas and propane. Now, in foreign country up there, there's a lot of propane, so people understood that, and it's still a derivative of natural gas, so it didn't really make one difference one way or the other. Uh, and those were subsidized for a while by state governments and federal governments. place what happens when it wears out because it's going to wear out that natural gas pipeline doesn't wear out it just flows gas for 50 60 70 100 years but when they have to take money out of their pocket but no longer having a subsidy or to fix those those degraded solar panels is that where the rubber hits the road and things start to shift I don't know but I suspect we could have we could have a uh, we could we could have a big issue coming in in the near future
1: Ray Scott with us. State Senate District seven in Western Colorado, the Grand Junction area. Now Grand Junction, that is a, is that primarily natural gas, or do you guys have some uh, old school wells up there cracking oil? We, we're,
0: we're probably 95 percent natural gas west of the Continental Divide, west of Denver. Uh, east of Denver, or I'm sorry, east of the Rocky Mountains is oil. Uh, but most of the natural gas we have out here is a, a very dry gas. matter of fact, I don't know if you've heard of this, if you could Google this one, it's called the Jordan Cove Project. Uh, we're waiting on a FERC approval right now because we have the pipeline infrastructure uh, that goes up into Wyoming and then goes towards Oregon. In a little town called Coos Bay, Oregon, they're waiting for approval to build an export facility for LNG. Uh, mm-hmm. A good majority of that gas will flow from western Colorado to, to Coos Bay, Oregon. There's already contracts that have been signed by the Taiwanese, the Japanese. I believe the Chinese are involved, and, and, and some of the Polish bloc countries. Lithuania is interested, to your point earlier, about $17 per thousand cubic foot of gas. When natural gas in, in, in our part of the world, and probably in yours as well, is about 3 bucks mm-hmm. per thousand cubic feet. You don't have to be an economics major to figure out that it's going to work. Uh, Those numbers are just huge. And, you know, it's a geopolitical question, too, right? I mean, how much natural gas supply do we want Russia and other countries to be supplying to people that need it? Shouldn't we be that supply to our friends versus somebody that's not their friend? Uh, Vladimir Putin's had a blast turning the valve on and off to, to Poland so that they can either have fuel or they don't have fuel. Uh, I, think, I think those are all those interesting things that kind of all connect in the, in the cogs of the wheel that people don't think about. The,
1: the other That's part the, of this, the, the other part of the argument that I absolutely love is, or the part of the conversation, I should say, is the oil companies, you know, they don't really like to talk about this too much, but all that flared gas, these mineral owners are not receiving a dime. Nope, so imagine now if the oil companies could capitalize. Turn it into a profit, and that way, some small business owner—that you know, eighty percent of the business that we know is small business. These big corporations, they can't move and be nimble and quick. They just—they got shareholders and attorneys and stock meetings. That's why they need small business to be these little science projects. So now, imagine if you, if these guys had subsidy money to pay the science projects and do the R and D, and then that way the mineral owners would get paid too. So not the local people would get paid, the the um, oil companies would get paid, and then the innovators would get paid too. Instead of just the same people getting the same money to produce the same ridiculous sure. Um, sure. results that aren't doing anything. That's you know, and again, we're not a political program, but we're starting to see where there's some conversations that need to be had, and there's some things that need to be pointed out. And when 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 the oil and gas industry is realistically, arguably the number one environmentalist on the planet. I mean, yeah. we're we're loving this because we, we could actually go toe-to-toe with anybody on this. I mean, just when you actually explain the way a rig mat works to somebody, they have no uh-huh. idea. I mean, yeah. to know that you can actually bring back the native fauna roots and, and plants, it's like the Boy Scouts. You actually leave the, the land better than when you got there. And oh, that doesn't no happen too often. No so... Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Colorado now. Um, the, everything I've been reading, by the way, we have Ray Scott with us uh, with the Senate in Colorado, District 7, talking about some of the changes and pontificating on some of the uh, natural gas issues that are out there, solutions. But you guys, your Proposition 112, and I think you said, was it 181 was the other one, Senate bill? What's going on there? I, I, I kind of got the feeling the can was kicked down. You know, you guys kicked the can a little bit till next year or till the next session as far as putting some new rules and regulations in or something like that. Give us an update where, if you're an energy company, what what is it, you know, that's going on?
0: Well, basically what they did by restructuring things with 181 uh, is they completely changed an independent commission, which was appointed by the governor, and past governors have always appointed a an independent group of people, and you've got to have, you know, downhole, if you will, in the industry experience, and you've got to have surface knowledge uh, or environmental knowledge. And, and our oil and gas commission always used to be made up mostly of downhole because that's where most of the issues come from. Uh, what's happened is this governor has taken and, and appointed a whole group of people from his his community in Boulder that are strictly environmentalists on this oil and gas commission. So what's going to happen now is they're going to rewrite all of the regulations in relates to oil and gas, and that's going to take them much longer than I think they believe it.
1: The uh, industry gets so political? I mean, I know that when I would stay in hotels in Fort Collins, Grand Junction area, uh, Denver, you know, I'd go and I'd mingle in the breakfast bar down in the morning, that sort of thing, or maybe the bar at night, you know, maybe have a spritzer or something like that and wind down. And um, it it was amazing. People, when I'd ask them what they do or whatever, they would look over the shoulder before they say the oil and gas industry. And sure. They were in Colorado, and this was like three years ago. I started noticing that. And oh yeah, I
0: well, it, I, yeah. I, I think the key the, the key thing that I would throw out there is the word lawsuit, because what happened was the Wild Earth Guardians and Earth Justice and the Sierra Club uh, figured out a very strategic way to create you know, havoc in in the industry. And that was to sue them for anything and everything that they could find. So if if the BLM, for example, sold off some acreage, they would immediately file lawsuits uh, against the operators to try to stop them from producing on BLM property or or public lands. You don't have too much of that in North Dakota, but we're we're about 70% in my county of public lands. Of course, then you got a president by the name of Obama that came in and put his foot on the throat of the, of the, of the production industry. So those things coupled together, I think, started that ball rolling. Uh, so now anytime you see some kind of a decision that comes out, there's immediately lawsuits filed to try to stop the operation or stop the sale of a particular piece of property or a, a regulation change. Uh, they figured out the magic of a lawsuit. And what's amazing is when you find out about these people, it's, it's like one attorney in one office sitting in Denver, Colorado, or, you know, Bismarck or wherever they might be, they're, they're not some organization with, you know, 10,000 people working in the building. It's one attorney, one office, easily files lawsuits to stop and create as much havoc as possible. Uh, hmm. So, you know, we'll have to see how this goes forward, but right now, uh, you know, the Trump administration has been doing, I think, a pretty good job of getting the regulators pulled back at the federal level. Uh, I think they could do more, quite frankly. And I believe you have a congressman. Did, didn't he become a senator? I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I met. Oh, him yeah, time.
1: Kevin Kramer, Senator Kevin yeah, Kramer. Kevin, yeah. He, yeah.
0: He, he actually came to Grand Junction and did a speech for us down here. Oh, no kidding. Uh, we, we need those guys to step up, as always. I mean, you know, the U.S. Congress is what it is. But we need them to step up and be harder... And we need the Trump administration to be even more bold than he is today on regulation. I think that would help push that
1: back. I guess what surprises me is, you know, I, I like I said, we, we try to be non political, and and we we were for a long time. And well, I'm, not, um, I'm not helping that cause, am I? <laughs> no, well, we're we're you know we're we're, we're enabling it. You know, we're in a, Like I said, it's the environmental part. Now we, we the fact that you've got two presidential candidates and a state, it's beyond pol- political. It's reality. It's just reality. Sure. so so we're okay talking about this, but what we don't understand, you know, in North Dakota, it's a little bit different. We're a smaller state because the Republican Party basically got behind the oil industry and and you know as well as I do, the the oil industry for a long time, part of their strategy was to be very tight with government officials. That was part of their strategy. and and after reading your your Federalist story, I see where the, the flip of the switch and the Trojan horses and all that stuff is happening to where they are starting to infect and, and change government by not being so honest and having some trickery plans in a long con, if you will. And you know, and, and, and this is, this is happening. This is just happening. But like in North Dakota, for example, we had the Dapple protest and that turned really ugly. I mean, it, it, I heard from a lot of people that that was as big as a black eye as the BP oil spill. We had um, our officials shot people with rubber bullets and sprayed them with water. And what did the other side? They had um, disabled veterans support them in Hollywood. So, it, you know, that's you're not going to win that public yep. public relations war. Thank God they yep. left that trash behind otherwise as protesters oh, no. i mean they showed their true colors and that was great That was they showed what they were they were about the attention not about the cause and 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 because of that that that's how it happened but my point is is that in in north dakota the republicans basically got behind the oil industry and so whenever somebody started arguing for the oil industry it just gun control and abortion control got lumped into it and sure and sure. did that happen in Colorado? Did it become that polarizing of a Republican Democrat issue? Because my, I, I'm just wondering why nor, more Democrats are not on board with the oil and gas industry because it does help people out of third world conditions. <laughs> I mean, just to well, be very know, basic. No, how, how did no, it get so true. political is what I'm getting at. I get it in North Dakota, but in other states, how did it get so political? Well, I think it
0: was very similar to what you're talking about. I mean, it was. You know, we have some similarities between the states, uh, and I think that's what started all of us down that trail. Uh, You know, how do we get out of that? I think, again, it's going to take time, and it's going to be a realization on some people's part, and maybe we're starting to see a little bit of that now, where they realize uh, just how important, you know...
1: One thing, like in North Dakota, for example, you know, the East West, it's sod busters and you know donkey, donkeys, whatever you want to call them, um, fracking and that sort of thing. So there's a ag and oil perception difference, and um, and which very similar to Colorado as well. When when you look at the way that the energy industry supports those those communities, it's it's in a level of capitalism like I've never seen, to where they they donate back you know they don't rely on the state and the local governments they would like that that would be great but at the end of the day so often these local communities that are reliant on the oil and gas industry they get left behind by the state governments because of the boom and bust years or whatever I don't know but at least in North Dakota it happened to where these energy industries had to continue had to continually give back to that area, and right now, by the way, the state of North Dakota, 50% of its state's budget is reliant on the oil and gas revenue. That's incredible. 50, and and by the way, that doesn't include the license fees and all that others. That's just the general budget. Okay, wow, that was an eye-opener to me because they didn't care two, two, two things about the oil industry 10 years ago. I mean, now, no. now everybody wants a piece of that pie. How is that in Colorado, out in Grand Junction? I would imagine be very similar. That it is a very the, is the industry taking care of pre, taking care of the local communities because I can't I can't see that the uh, state would probably think of Western Colorado as a high priority. Maybe I'm wrong, but
0: no, no, they don't. And and, and that's you know that, all the things that have happened in Colorado are pretty much focused just north of Denver towards Boulder. That's, that's where all the impacts have been. Uh, but to answer your question, the, the, the industry here in Colorado has always been incredibly generous. Uh, they do things without asking, right? I mean, they're just there when people need them. Uh, they've, been, they've done so many good things, with, with, whether it's universities, high schools, elementary schools. They're, they're just always there. Uh, and I, They haven't changed that. That's never really changed with them even though they're being vilified and even though there's you know, laws being passed to, to change how they do business, uh, they never step back. And that's, that's something that's so impressive about the energy sector is they're just amazing people and very generous to any local community that they're
1: near. Ray Scott on the line. with us just kind of wrapping up here. We're talking about an article he had published in the thefederalist.com talking about Colorado's governor and masks himself as an anti-energy extremist talking about the following of that story for the past 7 years on this program and how there's this is just another one of the stories that's talking about the new rise of the modern day environmentalist, the cult of environmentalism and how the energy industry has really become one of the leaders in reclamation and saving saving the earth and and really bringing it back to the way it was before. Kind of in closing here a little bit, what do you want people to really take away from this? I mean, you know, you, you're passionate enough to where you wrote a story, got picked up, willing to come on the program to talk a little bit about this. We kind of agree that it's it seems to be a template that's going on. You know, I mean, it, it almost seems like you're kind of, you know, a little bit of a warning you want to give people, but I won't say that unless you want to say that. So I'll just give you kind of the final thoughts to kind of Get, take take this whatever direction you want. If there's anything you want to reiterate, anything we left out, just kind of the floor is yours, sir. Well, thank you, number one, for having me on.
0: I, I appreciate your time and, and your listeners' time as we as we go forward. Uh, I think the the biggest thing I would like to tell people out there is you got they got to pay attention. I realize that everybody is so busy with their normal life, but that's what politicians is that you're so busy with your, your normal life that you're not paying attention to what's going on in your local politics. Uh, state politics, in my opinion, is much more impactful than federal politics. And the reason I say that is you can hear about something going on in the U.S. Congress and it takes them 10 years to get it out there. If you're worrying about a state government or a county government, uh, what they do goes into effect as soon as the governor signs it within you know weeks of the legislative session. So, you know, they don't have to bury themselves in politics, but they, they need to stay on top of publications uh, and just look at the headlines, and if something grabs your attention, read it, but stay informed, stay informed, you know, get involved as much as you can uh, with your Republican local party. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be there at every meeting, but, you know, make some attempt to get involved. That's the, that's the way our government was set up originally. And I think people have lost that. I mean, I think they got so busy with their regular lives that they just kind of lost track of what's going on. And it doesn't take much time, but you've got to keep paying attention. And for God's sake, you've got to vote. That is just so critical. When you see the numbers around the country where people are not voting like they should, it's just, it's just paramount that people really pay attention and vote. It's not that hard, obviously. But uh, stay involved and make sure that you understand what's happening.